Hi, writers. Welcome to another episode in our series of podcasts about writing fiction. This is Jim Thayer. I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad I'm here, too. I want to return to a subject briefly mentioned in a, an earlier episode, and that's about the term formula. The word formula is often used as a pejorative. It's thought that if something is a formula, it can't be good or original or creative. Formulas are often dismissed as not being creative, as if they limit a creator, stifle his or her inventiveness. But formulas are nothing more than a guidepost to what works. The history of that particular field shows what the audience expects and wants. I was reminded of this by an article by Terry Teachout titled, Why Musicals Succeed. In it, he explains how successful musicals are put together and why most of today's hit musicals follow the same structural rules as the hits of the 1940s and the 1950s. He explains, Terry Teachout, why some shows work and others flop. He says the rules of musical comedy success were worked out by Oscar Hammerstein II, the author of the book and lyrics of Oklahoma, uh, a 1943 production, music by Richard Rogers, of course. In addition, Terry Teachout says, Hammerstein and his musical collaborators wrote songs of varied types that advanced the plot of their shows rather than serving as mere showcases for the performers. And Terry Teachout lists the most essential of these song types. They are the opening number, which tells the audience what the show is about and how it will work, and it creates dramatic expectations. Then there's the I Want song, in which the main character tells the audience exactly what his goal is. Um, Terry Teachout says that while musicals like Gypsy and A Chorus Line open with such numbers, it is customary to have a separate I Want song a little later in the show, like uh, Wouldn't It Be Loverly from My Fair Lady. The, the lyrics are, all I want is a room somewhere far away from the cold night air. Isn't that terrific? And then uh, Terry Teachout says the uh, I Want song is essential to Hammerstein-style musicals. Quote, the hero has to want something that's hard to get and go after it come what may. The sooner the audience understands this, the better. End quote. That's Terry Teachout. Uh, and then he says, if, uh, if, on the other hand, the stakes are too low or ill-defined, the audience will not be engaged by the hero's quest, and the show will fail. And then uh, there's the conditional love song, which describes the obstacles that stand in the way of the romantic union of the, two main, uh, of the main couple. Uh, and he says the quintessential example 
is If I Loved You from Carousel, the 1945 music by Rogers with the book and lyrics by Hammerstein. These obstacles help to give a musical enough dramatic conflict to hold the audience's attentions. Then, Terry Teachout says, there's the Tent Pole song, a first-act ensemble number that ramps up the energy level in preparation for the intermission. And then the first-act finale, in which the plot is unexpectedly complicated in a way whose resolution cannot be anticipated by the viewer, thus inducing him to come back after intermission. And then Terry Teachout says there's the 11 o'clock number, the second act production number that is the centerpiece of a musical. He says that, in short, this formula is an efficient and reliable way of amusing large numbers of people, but one that, in the hands of inspired craftsmen, can also be used to create enduringly beautiful popular art. That's Terry Teachout. Formulas work in musicals and in novels. So here's a suggestion that I think is uh, important. We should, as novelists, pick a genre and write in it. There are so many genres and such a wide variety within genres that we won't find them limiting. There's Mainstream novels, romantic comedies, romance, comedy, detective, thriller, science fiction, fantasy, western, sports, women's fiction, horror, historic, literary, and probably others that don't leap to mind at the moment. Each of these genres have formulas that we can find and use. Here's an example, the elements of a thriller. First, there's a, a big imminent threat set out early in the story. There's an active protagonist with an edgy background. There are often exotic settings that add to the interest. There are numerous action scenes. The point of view that is cool which means that the author intentionally does not go deeply into the hero's thoughts or feelings. And most often there's a happy ending or a satisfactory ending. Looking at the genres and uh, trying to determine the formula for the genres, we'll find out that most of these genres have subgenres. For example, uh, detective novels can be broken down into capers, classic whodunits, cozies, espionage, forensic, hard-boiled, historical, legal, military, police procedural, political, science fiction mystery, serial killer. Uh, other genres have uh, many genres too. Uh, within the romance genre, there are contemporary romance, erotic romance, fantasy romance, historical romance, LGBTQ romance, 
adult romance, paranormal romance, romantic comedy, romantic suspense, sports romance, young adult romance, and probably others. For each of these genres, even the subgenres, we can find elements of a formula that sets out what readers want, and so what publishers want. These formulas are tried-and-true patterns that meet market expectations. And for our success, that's what we writers should try to do. We should meet the market. How do we find the formula? We can do some research, go online and search for something like historical romance formula. You'll find considerable information. Or remember three books that you last read in the genre. Or read three best-selling books in your genre, that you, the, the genre you want to write in, and note their commonalities. Even novels in the same genre that appear to be wildly different will have touchstones, those things that make them part of a genre and make them publishable. This is heartfelt advice from me, to me, and to all of us writers. Pick a genre and follow the formula. You will have plenty of room for creativity within that formula. We want to become published. And so uh, if we're not writing in a formula, we're probably doing experimental fiction. We might know it or not know it, but if, if we can't identify the formula we're writing in, it's, it's probably experimental and for every Tom Robbins and, and Kurt Vonnegut, wildly successful experimental novelists, there are thousands of us who tried to be experimental and so didn't write something publishable. If we were to spend all the time and work on writing our novel, we should do the best we can to make our work publishable. So think about your genre and the formula for it. Let's change the topic and go to a, a subject I think is, is fun. And that's the title to our novel or our short story. What should we call it? Selecting a, a good title is sometimes hard. It's fun to think about, but it's sometimes hard to land on a good one. We invent a title, and then we think and think and think about it, and pretty soon we've gotten too close to it and lose our ability to judge it. Is our title lovely and attention-grabbing, or is, or is it weird and meaningless? It's funny how childhood memories work. Uh, I recall reading a little Lulu comic book when I was a kid. And little Lulu said that if you repeat a word often enough, it becomes meaningless. And she used the word foot. Foot, foot, foot. If you think about it, pretty soon the word foot disassociates from reality. It's true of titles, too. Uh, we might lose the ability to judge our title after we've thought and thought and thought about it. But Nicholas Parsons, in his The Book of Literary Lists, set out titles of actual books that we don't need to wonder about. Listen to these titles. 
Living with Antiques in New Zealand. The Book of Marmalade, its antecedents, its history, and its role in the world today. One hundred years of British rail catering. <laughs> Population and other problems. Big and very big hole drilling. Why replace a missing back tooth? The winged bean. Well, I, I hope we can come up with better titles than these. I'm not commenting on those books. They might be great, but the titles are a little clanky. Publishers may change a novel's title f for a number of reasons. Uh, the legendary Simon & Schuster editor Michael Corda, in his memoir, Another Life, says that Joseph Heller's Catch-22 was named Catch-18 until a publisher found out that Leon Uris was just about to publish Myla-18. Michael Corda also relates this incident about a title. Viking had been Graham Greene's publisher for years. Viking had sent Green's new book, Travels with My Aunt, to Playboy, hoping to sell magazine rights. Playboy was eager to serialize the book, but wanted a more manly title, and Viking's Tom Ginsberg decided he didn't much like the title either. He sent Graham Greene a list of alternate titles and that his staff had suggested. suggested Green cable back, easier to change publishers than title. Graham Greene left Viking for Simon & Schuster. Uh, Michael Corda goes on in uh, his uh, text, Making the List, A Cultural History of the American Bestseller. Michael Corda says the publishing legend Robert Gottlieb, back when he was the editor at Simon & Schuster, once held an informal contest among his colleagues in the train on their commute, on their, or, or rather on their way to the uh, American Booksellers Association Convention in Washington, D.C., a contest for the most boring title anybody could imagine for a book that might reasonably be published. The winner was Canada, Friendly Giant to the North. It was a joke that lost some of its savor when the next day, uh, the next day when somebody actually found a book by that title on display at a, another publisher's booth. That's uh, Michael Corda talking about titles. Here is some what I think is a good suggestion about titles. The novelist Roddy Doyle, who wrote one of my favorite novels, The Commitments, it's a great movie too. Roddy Doyle gives good advice about a novel's title. Quote, Do give the work a name as quickly as possible. Own it and see it. End quote. That's Roddy Doyle. A title gives, gives us, uh, the writer, something solid to focus on, and it lends heft to the project. It's a concise handle for a huge project that at times during the writing seems far away and diffuse. The Oxford Companion to Charles Dickens says, quote, Titles were particularly important to Dickens, and finding the right one was a vital part of the groundwork for a novel. Uh, 
Dickens needed to find a title he liked before he began writing in earnest. The uh, Oxford companion to Charles Dickens goes on to say, Coming up with a title isn't as easy as it might appear. According to the critic David Lodge, Dickens listed 14 possible titles for the novel that would eventually become Hard Times. Uh, These included According to Cocker, Prove It, Stubborn Things, Mr. Gradgrind's Facts, The Grindstone, and many others. Uh, When we have uh, difficulty coming up with a title we like, it's nice to know that Charles Dickens had the same problem. The critic David Lodge says that the title of the earliest English novels were invariably the names of the central character, and he lists Maul Flanders, Tom Jones, and Clarissa. He says, uh, this is the critic David Lodge, he says, Later novelists realized that titles could indicate a theme, such as sense and sensibility, or suggest an intriguing mystery, such as the woman in white, or promise a certain kind of setting and atmosphere, such as Wuthering Heights. At some point in the 19th century, David Lodge says, they began to hitch their stories to resonant literary quotations, such as Far From the Matting Crowd, and a practice that persists throughout, through, persisted throughout the 20th century, such as Where Angels Fear to Tread, A Handful of Dust, and For Whom the Bell Tolls. He says the great modernists were drawn to symbolic or metaphorical titles, Heart of Darkness, Ulysses, The Rainbow, while more recent novelists often favor whimsical offbeat titles such as Catcher in the Rye, A History of the World in Ten and a Half Chapters, for black girls who consider suicide when the rainbow is not enough. This is David Lodge. And he agrees with the importance of titling our novel early. Quote, for the novelist, choosing a title may be an important part of the creative process, bringing into sharper focus what the novel is supposed to be about. That's David Lodge. A title is a a rewarding, solid thing to have in place as we spend the months working on the novel. So we should consider coming up with a title early in our writing process. What makes for a good title? Well, I'm not sure of. Uh, I'm not sure, but uh, there are things a good title should do, and and perhaps there are things it shouldn't do. And here are some thoughts about inventing a title for our novels. First, try to suggest movement or a puzzle. Get the story moving as early as possible is standard advice for writers. You've heard me mention it. There's no need to wait until the story starts to suggest conflict and motion because it can be done with the title, Gone with the Wind by Margaret Mitchell. What's gone? Where did it go? Appointment in Samara by John O'Hara. O'Hara. Why go to remote Samara? Who's the appointment with? To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Who would consider such a thing? What does the phrase mean? Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. How can anyone be invisible? 
Sophie's Choice by William Styron. Why does she have to choose? What are the choices? Worth Dying For by Lee Child. What's worth dying for? So we can get the novel going, suggesting a movement or a puzzle in the, in the first words, which are the title on the cover. A second piece of advice is try not to be imitative. How many novels have the word blood in the title? Maybe hundreds. Blood Brothers, Divine by Blood, Angel's Blood, Bloodborne, Bloodlines, Blood of Roses, When Blood Calls, Blood of Silver. There are page after page of blood titles at Amazon. Diamonds are another favorite. Dangerous in Diamonds, The Eustace Diamonds, Diamond in the Rough, Diamond Spur, The Diamond Heartstone, Diamonds Can Be Deadly, and yes, there's even a novel titled Blood Diamond and another titled Diamond Blood. A novel, that's, a, novel, a novel title that sounds like a hundred other titles is, is hard to remember. Uh, here, here's a third piece of advice. We should try not to have a confusing pronunci- pronunciation. I would never second-guess Thomas Hardy, believe me. However, Tess of the D'Urbervilles, D'Urberville is hard to spell and hard to pronounce, and I'm uh, right now. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly. Is it Americanized? Is it French? Here's a more recent one: Ubik by Philip K. Dick, the the wonderful uh, sci-fi writer. Is it Ubik or Ubik or Ubik? I, I don't know. Another uh, another uh, bit of advice is try not to be dull in our title. Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. Under the Net by Iris Murdoch. It by Stephen King. On the Road by Jack Kerouac. Well, I'm at a dead end if I'm mentioning something negative about Sinclair Lewis or Iris Murdoch or Stephen King or Jack Kerouac. These writers have the talent and the reputation to overcome dull titles. Most of us should try for something more vivid, I think. Another suggestion is try to be lyrical. Put together sweet-sounding words. Southern Lights by Danielle Steele. What the Night Knows by Dean Kuntz. Full Dark, No Stars by Stephen King. Isn't that wonderful? Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. Some phrases are lovely and so are memorable. I'm not sure how important a title is, but some shoppers will buy a book simply based on the title, as I did with Clive Cussler's famous Raise the Titanic, which is such a mysterious and evocative phrase the novel demanded to be read. Some best-selling novels have poor titles, and some titles with some novels with great titles don't do well. But there's no downside to coming up with a memorable title for our novel, and it's fun to think about. If you are finding these podcasts about writing fiction useful and would like to support 
the show, please hit the support the show button below and it will take you to Patreon. And it'd be much appreciated. Well, I am all out of words for today, which my wife Patty would reply with, out of words, never happened before in history. I'm glad you were along today. I'll see you next time. This is Jim Thayer, and until then, keep tapping those keys. <laughs>